I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. In the fields and forests of Middle Tennessee, there are people wearing camo or blaze orange. They're sitting patiently, waiting for a sign. What do they hope to see while they sit in the crisp, cold air? It could be deer, rabbit, or ducks. Hunting season is open, and that means experienced hunters and newcomers alike are preparing their rifles, shotguns, and bows to bag some fresh game. Later this hour, we'll meet some local hunters and wildlife officials to learn more about the sport and what to look for during this year's hunting season. But first, it's time for At Us. Each week, we take time to read the comments so you don't have to. Yes, I am encouraging you to literally at us on Twitter at This Is Nashville and on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN. Joining me now with a look back at the past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. Hey, Anna. Hey, Khalil. It feels like it's been a while since I've been here. It has been a while. <laughs> so good to have you. All right. So what's good on Twitter? Hold on. Hold on. Twitter is still alive, right? I mean, it, it it's there and kicking, but barely. But I might be a little bit over dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to do an episode about Twitter next Tuesday, so tune in, everybody. All right, so back to our comments. Right. So the Monday before last, we decided to prepare for flying over the weekends with um, an episode about the airport. Yes, and the famous BNA carpet. So during that show, we got several tweets from a listener named Ashley King, and he is not a fan of BNA. Okay, so not just the carpet, but the whole thing. The whole thing. Wow, okay. Ashley called the airport, quote, unwelcoming to average people. And for now, let's just say that there was some pretty serious complaints about diversity, diversity and inclusion. As you probably remember, we invited a representative from the airport to appear on the show, but no one was available at that time. Mm -hmm. So we reached out again after the show aired and asked for a response to these questions from Ashley. A spokesperson wrote back and said, quote, this is a deeper conversation than us just emailing back responses. So it sounds like we're going to have to make space for that conversation with a future show, huh? Definitely. Because it turns out there's even more airport stuff to talk about. Oh, yeah? What else you got? <laughs> well, another one of Ashley's tweets mentioned how the airport makes its money. And we started to get into that at the end of the show, but, you know, we ran out of time. Mm -hmm. Bob Minter was one of the guests that day, and he, he emailed us afterwards to say that, quote, the aviation system nationally and internationally is very complex, and short explanations are virtually impossible. So, okay, let me guess. The money part is also pretty complicated. You got it. Mm -hmm. Bob said that federal and state fuel taxes and ticket taxes make up the bulk of the airport's revenue. But like you said, it's complicated. Bob says, quote, the general public has no idea how airports are funded and generally don't believe that there are no local taxpayer dollars involved. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like we've got another airport episode getting ready to board. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for the pun. But, you know, before we can do new shows, we have to talk about what we couldn't fit into past shows. Mm -hmm. So um, as this Monday show about slavery was just about to end, um, our listeners may remember that our guest, Dr. LaRotha Williams, was just about to tell us about a woman that he requires his students at TSU to know about before they walk into his history class. You mean Nettie Langston Napier. Napier should be a familiar name with most Nashvillians because of the public housing in North Nashville. 
of course. But that's named after her husband, James Carroll Napier. Dr. Williams compared their relationship to like Jay-Z and Beyonce. Okay. And like Queen Bee, Nettie was successful in her own right. So after Monday's show, Dr. Williams agreed to stick around to finish his story. And here's what he shared. So she marries J.C. Napier, and I tell my students that she would have been bad had she never met him, because prior to marrying him, she was responsible for saving Frederick Douglass's home. So she comes to Nashville, and she gets involved in the women's club movement in this city. And when I say women's club movement, don't get the idea that, you know, these are some ladies that are sitting around drinking tea and playing bridge and all of that. No, no, that's not the case. These ladies are actively thinking about, you know, what can we do for African Americans? What can we do to elevate the race? And she, like other women at the time, particularly when you start looking at the National Association of Colored Women who formed and their motto was lifting as we climb. They reached out to the poorest black women with the idea that if we could elevate them, um, the entire race would prosper. So Nettie Napier creates something that's called the Day Home Club. And at this place, she and um, her co-workers resolved to provide for the needs of single working black mothers. So when you think about that, you think of what some of the things our single moms need. They need child care, right? They have kids in school. They need those kids either picked up or, or taken to school. They create after-school programs, and they do this they create the day home club so that it works. It's in operation for all three shifts. But she also brought in teachers to teach these children. And then she brought in her friend. She called up a black woman named Josie Wells, who at that time was on her way to becoming like the most the second most important person at Meharry Medical College. She brings her in, and Dr. Wells provides free health care for the children that are there. So what we see with this day home club is more than just a house or a daycare center. All of those topics that I just referenced, right, you know, like child care, um, health care, education, having a safe place to stay, so that's housing. In many regards, all of those are civil rights issues when you think about mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. So these women, Nettie Napier is doing all of these things in Nashville years before the NAACP has been formed, years before the Niagara Movement, which was precursor mm -hmm. to the NAACP, has been formed. So um said all that to say this, if we're talking about civil rights in this city, then you probably need to look at Nettie Napier. We can always leave it to Dr. Williams to give us the lowdown on an important, historic Nashville icon. Of course. Um, but 
uh, we had another show this week where we also ran out of time. You know, Anna, isn't that every show? I mean, it's true, and I swear we can make every episode like two hours long, but mm-hmm. that's not the point. <laughs> Anyways, in our episode this week on the past, present, and future of HIV and AIDS in Middle Tennessee, we somehow did not mention PrEP. Yes. So for those who don't know, PrEP, or pre-exposure prophylaxis, is a medicine you can take to help decrease your chances of getting HIV. Yeah, and it's actually super effective. And we're really sorry for not mentioning that during the show itself. We had some fantastic guests, including advocates for two plus decades and a few folks living with HIV today, including Dr. Joseph Interante, who was a longtime CEO of Nashville Cares. He says that PrEP really changed the mission of Nashville Cares and gave them the sense for the first time that there was an end in sight for the AIDS pandemic. There's a lot more info about PrEP at NashvilleCares.org slash HIV hyphen facts, F-A-Q-S. Check it out, y'all. Anything else, Anna? Of course. One last thing. We had an episode recently all about who votes and who doesn't in Nashville. We got a comment on Instagram from someone who goes by Eartha Kitch. She wrote, quote, it breaks my heart to hear someone say that they're too busy to figure out how to figuring out how to feed and clothe their family to go vote. Our politicians work for us. And if we don't vote and have a say in who is elected, they may never do a single thing to help us better our situations. Too many good, hardworking people are staying home from the polls. And in their opinion, it's destroying all of our chances at living good lives. Go out there and speak the truth, Eartha Kitsch. Speak the truth. (laughs) But on the flip side of that, after the show, our guest Tequila Johnson from the Equity Alliance tweeted this. She wrote, quote, for the record, I don't blame disenfranchised or fatigued voters for not showing up. I blame lackluster politicians for not showing up up while occupying space. The people are tired of politics as usual. They want to see and feel the benefits of voting. They want real policy change. Amen to that. Well, for those of you who feel disenfranchised or fatigued about voting, we still want to hear your perspective, of course, even when we're not in an election year. So, you know, you can look out for that in upcoming episodes. And as always, you can write into us through our survey at thisisnashville.org. Thanks to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon, for this roundup. Anna, we'll see you soon. Of course, and our listeners know where to find me online. Don't forget to add us on Twitter and Instagram, and let's keep the comments coming. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with some local hunters. How did they get started? And what keeps them coming back? Are you a hunter? What's your choice of game? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. It's that time of year again. The leaves have fallen. There's a chill in the air. Folks are bundled up in their camouflage gear. That's right. It's the season for hunting. Our producer, Magnolia McKay, went out to the woods in Sumner County right after sunrise with a few local hunters to see what they could find. George Montana has been hunting since he was little, and he knows the best spots to find white-tailed deer. This morning, he's hunting with the man who taught him these skills, his father, Lou. 
After walking for nearly a mile, George waves us into the woods. We hike downhill for almost 10 minutes. I can tell that we're getting closer because he steps as lightly as he can on the forest floor. Finally, we reach our spot. It's an area on the hillside with fallen trees about halfway between the path above and the creek below. And now, we wait. I hear nothing, but George hears a lot in this silence. You're doing it for years. I can tell when they're walking because I can hear the pattern in the, the, the noise. Mm. A lot of times it just sounds like the leaves blowing in the trees, but <laughs> you know, after doing it for a long time, you kind of learn to pick up on those sounds. And even with it being a little wet, it's harder to pick up on, but you can still hear them moving around. Yeah. Even so, we aren't bringing anything home today because the wind tipped us off to the deer, too. Which is why Lou sees it this way. You know, that's why I call it hunting and not killing. Because you're hunting for them, you may or may not see them. I suppose it goes that way sometimes. My next guest can relate. Ashley Chance is a hunter and the Southeast Program Coordinator for Artemis, a sports women's organization. And George Matina, as you just heard, is a longtime hunter. Ashley, George, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having us. Really a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure to have you both. So I want to start off by asking about the end of what we just listened to. Ashley, how often is it that you don't find any game when you're out on the hunt? Oh, that's a great question. Well, you might have just heard in the background my daughter. Um, she often uh, comes hunting with me, and that can be a big determinant of whether we find game or not. But I think George can probably relate. It depends a lot on the location um, and the species that you're after. Well, what keeps you coming back? Oh, there's a lot of things. I think the biggest one is the connection to the outdoors that hunting gives me, along with you know, the time with friends and family, the other people that I'm hunting with, and of course, um, things to fill the freezer with. Okay. Now, now take me back in time. How did you discover your love for hunting? Well, it started like it does for a lot of people. Um, I was a kid hunting with my dad, deer hunting with him and my uncles and cousins, and it just kind of progressed from there. I had a conversation with him on the phone a few weeks ago. Where I was telling him about a recent um, deer hunt that I went on and he made the comment that he never expected me to take it this far. Um, but it's a big part of my identity. And again, a big part of how I, I feed my family. Now you just mentioned deer. Are there other types of game that you hunt? Yeah, I try as much as possible to diversify myself as a hunter whenever I can. So I hunt everything from small game all on the way up to deer. So earlier this week, I went rabbit hunting. Um, I really enjoy waterfowl hunting, upland birds, um, even squirrels. 
That's cool. That's cool. Now, George, how about you? We just heard you tracking some white-tailed deer, but are there other types of hunting you enjoy? Yeah, I um, enjoy waterfowl. I don't do a whole lot of small game hunting, rabbits and squirrels, that kind of stuff. Here, I'm from Utah originally, um, and out there, I would hunt a lot more rabbit than we do typically here, but um, I do really enjoy waterfowl hunting. Um, and mainly here, it's it's white-tailed deer. Um, now, waking up before dawn when it's cold out takes a lot of dedication. Tell me, what do you love about hunting? Um, it's peaceful to me. You know, you're you're out there in nature, and and there's there's it's just you with 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 your surroundings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't have the distraction of life. You know, um, and a lot of, you know, just seeing the different animals that are out there. Um, you know, where I'm at, there's a lot of coyotes and we see bobcat occasionally. Um, so it's it's just getting out in nature and, you know, I do the, you know, I enjoy being able to provide uh, food for my family that I know hasn't been over-processed or had any hormones or anything at that they're fed or, or any of that. It's just more of a natural food source. Um, plus, you know, it gives you a sense of uh, ability to provide for your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm sure the cell phone's not going off while you're out there hunting as well. No, no it's, it's usually turned off while I'm out there. Plus, I don't have service on my property, so it's not a big deal. (laughs) Now, as we heard, you learned to hunt from your dad. Yeah. What was it like to go hunting when you were young out in Utah? Uh, When I was young, we were the, the, I guess, the sheepdog. Okay. (laughs) So it's vastly different hunting Tennessee versus out west. Out west, you do a lot of spot and stock. So you get out in the hills, you'll get up on a hilltop and just kind of sit up there with binoculars and try to see anything moving. Well, if it gets late in the day, you know, normally deer and and those animals are moving in the evenings and early in the morning. Um, If you don't see anything, they would send us kids into the bottoms where they would bed down to scare them out. Okay. (laughs) Okay, that was your job. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, it, it got us started at a very early age. Um, and just like I say out there, a lot of hiking and and being with family because at, at that point it was it was a whole family affair. Mm-hmm. You had aunts and uncles and you know all the nieces and nephews. Everybody would be out there. Now, uh, what's the difference between hunting in Utah and hunting here in Tennessee? Uh, hunting in in Tennessee, so whitetail in general, you can patternize. So like they have a routine that they'll follow. So you pick out that pattern and you kind of watch them get out there and, you know, and, and this is, it's not something you just do when hunting season comes around. You got to, you got to work for it. Um, and you watch them and you learn their patterns where at West, most of them, they will have a pattern, but if you disrupt it at all, they won't come back. They may be years before they come back to that area. Um, so it's a lot more spot and stock where here you can, if you know their pattern, you can pick an area and just sit down and wait for them to come through. It may take a few days for them to come through that area, 
but mm. eventually they're going to follow that pattern. Now, you mentioned something. You said you just can't do it during hunting season. So you mean to tell me that you are tracking the patterns of white-tailed deer throughout the entire year? Yeah. Wow, that is serious. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's the same with, with the mule deer and stuff we did out west. We would get out and scout and look for the best areas where you see the most movement um, and, and look for those deer that are worth harvesting because we're not just going to go out and shoot the first thing that comes in front of us. Um, you know, we're tr trying to, like, especially where I'm at here, you, you, it's it's broke up into small, most places are, you're hunting private land. There's, mm -hmm. there's limited public land to hunt here versus out west. Out west, there's vast acreage of, of land that's all public land to hunt, where here you have these small pockets. And so it's finding those areas where you know you're going to be successful, but then you're not taking more than what's, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, what's needed in that area yeah. for conservation purposes. Now, Ashley, I'm curious, what do you use to hunt? Are you using a rifle, shotgun, bow and arrow? All of the above. <laughs> yeah, all of those things. Um, depending on the season and like I said before, the species, um, I kind of switch between the three. And this year I actually was able to harvest um, a buck using a muzzle loader. So one more to add to the list. Can you describe for us novices what a muzzle loader is? <laughs> yeah. Um the, a muzzleloader is what soldiers shot in the Civil War. Uh, the muzzleloaders of today are modernized, of course, but functionally it's a it's a type of rifle that the projectile isn't one single thing. So you have um, powder that you have to put in. It's kind of like a granulated little pressed into a disc. So you put that down the top of the barrel. Um, and then you put the bullet itself in there and then you have to put a charge um, in the in the back end of the barrel um, and then you have to cock it and then whenever you want to shoot you can pull the trigger and so all of that is to say that you generally only have one shot at whatever it is you're hunting as opposed to a different type of firearm that maybe you could reload more quickly so how does the the use of only one shot change your approach to how you hunt that's a good question. I mean, I, anytime I'm hunting something with, I like to think I only have one shot regardless of the, of the farm that I'm using, right? Like the goal is to make the best shot possible, the most ethical shot, the quickest, cleanest kill. Um, so I'm not, yeah. So I guess for me, it doesn't change it very much. Um, the other thing to note with muzzle loaders as compared to other rifles is that you have a, a shorter distance that you're able to shoot. Um, so that is one consideration is really just trying to get close enough um, to your target to be able to make the shot. Mm -hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about hunting season with avid hunters, Ashley Chance and George Matina. So, you know, I'm curious, what, what are some of the challenges to hunting? What makes it difficult to do, Ashley? Well, George mentioned one of them. It's that you really have to have a bead on what's going on in the place where you're going to hunt outside of the times you're just there hunting. So there's a lot that goes into it throughout the course of the year as far as preparation. I mean, I start shooting my bow in early summer, 
sometimes even earlier than that. Um, and, you know, practicing with any, any firearm that you're going to use is always super important. And then learning about whatever it is that you're hunting and trying to either pattern them if they're an animal that can be patterned or understand, you know, like for waterfowl, their migration, thinking about what's going to bring them into the area, you know, based on what's happening in states to the north understanding the food that the animal you're hunting eats and then being able to identify that on the landscape and thinking about how it, you know, is juxtaposed against cover or other things that they need. Um, and then trying to think about how they're going to move between them and put yourself in the right situation. So the knowledge, the preparation, and depending on what you're doing, the physicality of it. I mean, George had talked about spot and stock out in, out West, out in Utah, I, that sounds a lot more physically demanding to me than riding a four-wheeler to a tree stand, which is, you know, the way that a lot of folks um, deer hunt in the Southeast. So, but that's not to say that it can't be physically demanding here as well. So that's a lot of knowledge you all have to take in before you even think about putting on your gear and heading out in the morning, huh? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, on the flip side, there are benefits to it. George, you mentioned some of the health benefits of the meat that you get from there. Really, tell me in more detail about that. So with with deer meat, venison, it has a higher protein content than any other meat you can get, um, even even more than fish. Mm. Um, so if you're, a lot of people are on that, you know, high protein diet, which is, you know, um, so it's a good source of protein and it's a lot leaner than a lot of your meats, a lot, you know, if you say you're trying to make ground venison, well, most places add beef fat or pork fat to it to make it so it'll bind together to make anything out of it. So it's it's a lot leaner meat, so then it's a lot cleaner that way. Um, as well as, you know, knowing what it's feeding on. You know, like where I'm at now, it's feeding on a lot of, you know, this time of year, it's it's a lot of the, the leftover hay that's in some hay fields around me. Um, it, they'll eat blackberries. They'll eat some of the, the other vines and stuff in the area. But early in the season, they'll be eating acorns. Um, and even earlier than that, they'll be eating persimmons. So mm. the, the food source that they're eating is a lot cleaner than processed hay and stuff that's being fertilized and that kind of stuff um, being introduced into the food that they're taking in. Um, and so that, in my opinion, makes a lot cleaner source of food. They, um, you both have mentioned ethical hunting. Yes. You know, and I, I want to hear from both of you, George, first briefly. Why is that so important to you? Um, because I don't want to, I mean, my wife is Native American. And so we try to um, be thankful for what they're providing for us. And part of that is respecting them as, as a creature, as, as a, you know, another life mm -hmm. and you don't want them to suffer any more than necessary. So, you know, knowing the animal that you're hunting and making sure that when you do take that shot, it's a clean kill. So they're not suffering. Um, and also that you're, you're able to follow through with that shot and find them. Um, you know, I was taught you, you go through, you do everything possible to find an animal, even if it's a bad shot, which, you know, I, there's, there's no hunter that can say his every animal he shot was a perfect shot. 
Um, so you have to know how to track that animal afterwards and, and retrieve it. Um, and I think that all kind of falls into the ethics of making sure that you're a respectful hunter, respectful to the land, respectful to the animal, to other people's property, um, and just, you know, making sure that you're not just out there killing animals. Yeah. Ashley, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I am a meat eater. I eat meat, and it's important to me to be able to reckon with the fact that meat eating meat means that a life ended. Um, so I think, you know, having that firsthand experience of, first of all, getting able to being able to get out there and see the animal in, you know, in its home, living its life, doing what it would be doing. That's a huge privilege. And to see that it's not in a cage, you know, it's not in poor conditions, hopefully um, like a lot of domestic animals that are, you know, consumed end up being, I, that means a lot to me. Um, so I would echo everything that George said about, you know, respecting the animal by trying to make as clean of a kill as possible and being able to find them, understanding that as well. Um, yeah, I just, I think knowing that the animal had not even one bad day, hopefully just one bad moment or few moments, um, didn't have to get trucked off to a slaughterhouse or anything like that. That means a lot. Mm -hmm. Now, the Pew Charitable Trusts reported that the pandemic created a lot of new hunters across the country. And Ashley, you're working with Artemis, an organization of sportswomen. Have you seen an uptick in interest? You know, I don't know if I would say that I've seen an uptick in interest, but there are certainly a growing number of women participating in hunting and angling. Um, and one of the things that Artemis really do is connect women that hunt with other women that hunt um, because Currently, we only make up about 10% of hunters in the United States. And so it can be tough to find other women that have that shared passion. So what are some misconceptions people have about women hunters? Oh, gosh. I think there's a, a general idea among a lot of people, not all people, certainly, um, that women are not independent hunters, um, that they can't go out in the field or that they often don't go out in the field and complete the hunt from start to finish everything from, you know, scouting, finding a place to hunt, um, actually harvesting an animal, cleaning it, taking it home. Um, and that's just not true. I mean, certainly there are women out there that are at different points in their journey where they're still learning, just like there are men out there that are also at different points in their journey. But, um, I know since starting this job, I have met so many women that are just, they're ins inspirational to me. Um, with how skilled and knowledgeable they are about hunting and angling. George, for anyone who's interested in picking up the sport, what do you want them to know? Uh, the, the first thing I would say is, you know, it doesn't matter what weapon you choose to hunt with. Make sure you know the weapon and you're able to fire it safely and accurately um, and be patient. It, it, you know, it takes time to learn, you know, a lot of the skills. And, and if you can find someone that has been hunting, because a lot of the skills like tracking, that's, you know, anybody can get up in a tree stand and, and shoot a deer. Mm -hmm. But it's after that, as me and my dad will always say, that's when the real work starts. 
um, tracking that animal down, getting to it, cleaning it, you know, and we process our own deer. Um, getting familiar with, you know, how to track the animal after you've shot it is, it's one of those things that's passed down a lot of times. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, you can, your hunter safety will teach you how to, how to hunt safely, but it's not going to teach you how to follow through. Is that what you're teaching to your kids? Yes. Um, and I started as, as, I mean, my daughter was out scouting with me in a backpack. She couldn't even walk yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it's something I'm teaching my son. He was able to harvest his first deer uh, just this last weekend. Um, and I, you know, walk side by side with him, making sure he's learning, you know, everything that he can. So then when he's out on his own, he's, he can rely on himself. All right. Ethical hunter. That's awesome. That is avid hunter George Matina. He was joined by Ashley Chance, Southeast Program Coordinator for Artemis. Thanks to you both for being here. Good luck this season. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll get into what info you need to know about hunting in Middle Tennessee and join the conversation. Tell us about your most memorable hunting adventure. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. Before the break, we heard from some hunters about how they fell in love with the sport, even if you come home empty-handed sometimes. Now it's time to learn how to hunt and what to keep in mind when you're out in the wild. My next guests can help us to understand the rules of the game. Sorry for the pun, everybody. Taylor Martin is the Associate Director of Programs for the Tennessee Wildlife Federation, and Barry Cross is the Region 2 Outreach and Communications Coordinator for the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency. Taylor, Barry, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right, so uh, it's hunting season now, but what is in season? Barry, what are people currently allowed to hunt? Uh, right now, deer season is underway, and uh, so uh, that's that's a big focus of of the hunting public. Uh, but also, you've got uh, squirrel. You know, people can get out and hunt squirrel right now. So there, there's options for people. But uh, deer is king, and uh, uh, people like to get out and try to chase uh, a big deer, or you know, accomplish something that they haven't done, or put meat on the table. So I mean. Everybody does it for different reasons, but uh, it's it's what's happening now. Aside from squirrel, what are some of the other small game people might be hunting? Well, right now you're looking uh, quail, um, rabbit. Um, I think it all starts uh, November 28th, I think. But is what is today? Today's December 1st. December 1st. December 1st. So, yeah, rabbit, quail. Um, you, you've got those, and and so it's it. There's options. Okay, I'm not going to front. I know very little about hunting, so I've got a simple question for you, Taylor. Why is hunting season now so late in the fall and winter? Mm-hmm. So that has a lot to do with biological reasons. Like the agency, they have a whole staff of wildlife biologists that kind of go into that. But this is a time of year that really gives people a good opportunity to harvest an animal and it doesn't interfere with the animal's 
breeding cycle. Like right now for deer, for example, they're kind of coming off of their height of their breeding. So they would have just bred. But the reason we don't hunt deer in the spring is because they're raising their young. Okay. So, and that's really the case with most wildlife species, um, unless they're breeding all year round. The, the spring, summer is when they're raising. So it'd be pretty detrimental to hunt animals during that time. So there's no hunting of anything allowed in the springtime. Uh, I think there mm-hmm. is a spring squirrel season. Well, spring squirrel, and then you got turkey season. Mm-hmm. Turkey season's year round. Yeah. Well, no, in the springtime. Okay. Uh, we do have a fall season on them. Uh, in certain counties, but uh, in springtime, that's when turkey season generally comes around, and that's end of March through, well, this year it'll be two weeks later, but um, so mid-April through mid-May. Um, so that's the turkey breeding season. That's when the the gobblers are going to gobble, and they, they'll answer a call, and it's exciting. If you've never done that, if you've never hunted and you wanted to go hunting, okay. I would recommend you go on a turkey hunt. Okay. Okay. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So let's say I do want to mm-hmm. learn to hunt. What do I have to do to get started? Like, walk me through the process. Well, I mean, this is this is my recommendation. If you can find a class, uh, TWF is a, is a good source for that. Um, we do some classes that that give people the basics um, but find find a class, uh, watch videos. But the biggest thing I would tell people is if you know somebody that's already doing it, talk to them. Um, likely you're going to end up on a hunt with that person. You'll learn more from somebody who's engaged with you than you will from us. But all those all those options are good options. Now, Taylor, you teach people how to hunt. What are some of the most important lessons you stress with your students? So really starting out you know a lot of people come to us they haven't hunted before they don't come from a hunting background but they see it as something they want to get involved to and really the first thing that we tell people it's not even how to hunt it's about why hunting is important and giving them all the reasons why it's like number one and foremost hunting is conservation so hunters conserve natural resources tennessee is very fortunate that we have beautiful landscapes from Uh, West Tennessee all the way out to the mountains in East Tennessee. And we teach people to realize that those areas don't happen by chance. They're Mm. there because specific efforts went in to preserve those. And most of that was funded by hunters. So that's really the first thing that we start out with. And then we start teaching people the how-tos, like what you need to know. If you're going to go turkey hunting, it's like, what do you need to know about turkeys and how to call turkeys and how to set up on them. But really, we start with that base foundation. It's like, why hunting is important? And then people's motivations take it from there. So how would you describe your most typical student? Most typical student is, you know, someone in their late 20s, mid 30s. They come in and say, hey, you know, I've been thinking about this. Or maybe they went hunting once in their life. And it's like, I didn't get anything. I enjoyed it. But now that I'm older, I have more free time. I have a little bit of uh, extra money in my pocket. I'd like to pursue this hobby, Mm -hmm. but I have no idea of where to start. And the Internet's good for a lot of things, uh, one of which is that it has a lot of information. But hunting is one of those things that there's a lot of ways to do the, the same thing to get the same outcome. And it can be overwhelming. So people come to us so they kind of meet an actual person and hear that person say, hey, this is how a good way is to do it. 
And that's really the typical person that we have come through the program. You know, anything that can take down a deer is going to do some real damage to a hunter, too. I imagine safety is paramount when it comes to hunting. Barry, what are some safety measures that hunters must adhere to when they're out in the field? Well, you know, this time of year, everybody's out there, or most people are out there hunting with a firearm. Um, And firearm safety is very important to us as an agency. We want people to be aware of the muzzle all the time, make sure that they're always pointing that uh, firearm in a safe direction. But more than that, make sure that they have uh, a good knowledge of the firearm that they're using. Don't 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 go in the field with something you don't understand. And uh, so make sure that you're competent with the firearm. Uh, of course, uh, if you're going to be out and about in the field during gun season, uh, uh, you've got to be seen. So we we always preach that you got to have 500 square inches of blaze orange, which basically is a vest and a hat mm-hmm. will suffice um, because <clears throat> you don't want to be mistaken uh, for something uh, that you're not. And then uh, the last thing, I guess, is uh, we see a lot of accidents with tree stands. Um, and tree stands are great for deer hunting. Um, but, you know, if you don't follow the rules, you run the risk of hurting yourself. And so we have people every year that fall out of a tree. Mm. And uh, if you've ever fallen very far, <clears throat> you understand that 10-foot fall, that, that hurts. Yeah. So uh, we, we preach tree stand safety. Make sure that you're using three-point contact if you're uh, climbing a, a tree a ladder uh, or if you're trying, if you're climbing a tree and you've got your harness on, make sure you wrap that harness around the tree so that you're connected to the tree all the way from the top to the bottom. Um, most accidents happen when people are climbing up or climbing down, and and we want people to be aware of those. Do you advise against using alcohol while people are hunting? Uh, yeah, no, we don't. We don't encourage that at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and you know, really, to get out into the woods, it's really a uh, a time for either sharing time with friends and and family or, you know, time to get out there and just reflect and enjoy the hunt and uh, maybe focus a little bit on something that you don't have to deal with during the week. You know, you're, you got some alone time and you can just enjoy and unwind. Earlier in the show, our guests, George and Ashley, were talking about scouting Mm -hmm. their, their, their prey, I guess we would call it. Um, what about laws against setting bait? Are people allowed to set bait, wear pheromones or something? Um, we the Baiting is not allowed in Tennessee, and baiting, by definition, is putting out a food source uh, in order to attract animals to harvest. Um, we can supplemental feed in Tennessee, um, and people do that to... Uh, increase uh, mass of antler and that kind of thing, or do it for uh, picture purposes to draw animals in, take pictures. Um, but baiting, by definition, is uh, manipulating a food source so that you can harvest an animal. We don't allow that. Um, people can put out a salt lick in Tennessee. A salt lick is mineral. Um, it's not food. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's legal to hunt over. And but yeah, no, we don't allow people to hunt over bait. Now, Taylor, you were talking about the conservation that uh, efforts and how it benefits from people being avid hunters. Your organization, the Tennessee Wildlife Federation, 
you know, tell me two things. How important is conservation to you all? And also, what are you all doing to prevent the overharvesting of wildlife here in the state? So, number one, like conservation across the entire state, one of the main things that we look at is policy, because really that's one of the big threats to our wild places and stuff is, you know, maybe developments or things that may come in um, similarly or legislation to help protect wildlife. Um, there's a big one that's being deliberated right now. We're covering America's Wildlife Act. You know, those are things that we really like to support as the Tennessee Wildlife Federation and also while being a voice for Tennessee's hunters. So on the idea of over hunting, uh, that's where the agency comes in quite a bit with their biologist. And for deer, for example, if you harvest the deer in Tennessee, you have to tag it, which means you essentially log into the app and tell the agency, hey, I harvested this deer. Uh, this is where I did it. Uh, this is what it is, male, female, all the details about it. And the agency can see that and mm -hmm. see and know exactly how many deer are being harvested across the state. And that's when they set their seasons and bag limits and like how many deer you're allowed to harvest. That's all goes into it to make sure we don't do that. Um, the Tennessee Wildlife Federation, we were founded in 1946. And one of the main reasons we were founded was because there were no game rules and regulations. Uh, people market hunted and people just went out and harvested anything they could uh, whenever they got a chance. And we really saw a downward trend of a lot of our native species. Um, my dad grew up in West Tennessee and he'll tell you back in the 70s, if you saw a deer, it made front page news. Wow. It, they were just not prolific. And through agencies of the effort, or, or the agency's efforts and other groups, uh, deer were reintroduced. Turkey were reintroduced. We have elk in East Tennessee again. Now, and that's all because of conservation efforts. Now, like I said before, I'm not really a hunter. But hypothetically, let's say I was able to harvest a whitetail bucks, one that weighed about 135 pounds. You know, what are the rules of the game, Barry? How am I supposed to harvest this this animal? What am I supposed to do next? Uh, <clears throat> once you've got an animal on the ground, you, you're going to have to take it to a processor unless you want to process it yourself. But the first thing that you're going to do from the agency perspective is uh, tag that animal or check it in. And we have an app called TWRA On The Go. Uh, you can check that animal in. Even if you don't have cell service, it'll it'll go ahead and uh, check it in when you do hit cell service. Uh, or you can go to our website and go outdoorstennessee.com and check it in that way. Um, that gives us a record. Uh, allows us to make sure that you've harvested the animal like you should have. Um, but, yeah, that's the first thing you should do. And, and really after that, it's it's how are you going to get that animal from the field to the table and mm -hmm. a processor is what you're going to be looking for. Now, there's a disease that's affecting deer. It's called chronic wasting disease. Right. Barry, can, can you tell us what that is and what it does to deer? In Tennessee, uh, chronic wasting disease was found in 2018 over in West Tennessee in the counties of Fayette and Hardeman County. And uh, chronic wasting disease is a, a sponge form type disease. So it, uh, it, basically is prions that are mutated proteins that build up in the body of the deer. And uh, after a certain amount of time, these start concentrating in the brain area and they'll start disorienting the animal and, and eventually it will die. There is no cure for the disease. Um, 
it's been on the landscape since the early 70s out west, and it's it's gradually moved this way. So when we found it here in Tennessee, uh, we uh, started working to make sure that we try and, I, one number one, identify everywhere that we have it, uh, but now we're trying to contain that. Um, so when you when a county becomes positive for chronic waste and disease or it becomes high risk, meaning uh, positive was found close to its border, uh, two things go into effect, which are feeding restrictions, which means you no longer can supplemental feed or have any feed out uh, in the woods. Uh, and the second thing is transportation restrictions. Mm-hmm. And that that's really important because we don't want people taking a positive CWD animal and taking it to a county that's not affected by the disease. What are some quick warning signs that a deer is infected? Taylor? Uh, A lot of the times, CWD, that's the downside of it, is that you can't visibly see it in a deer. Uh, Mm. Sometimes deer, uh, if they're, I think one of the most common things people report is that the deer is not skittish of humans, it will, it will get close and it's just acting weird. It is kind of unaware of its surroundings, but that's uh, really the downside of it is that you can't really, you can't see by looking at the deer. And that's why uh, the testing that the agency is doing and uh, other groups is so important because that's really the only way to know. Is there any chance real quick, we have a couple seconds left, any chance that the disease can be transmitted to humans? It's never been documented that it transmits to humans, although The CDC recommends that if a deer comes back positive, not to eat the meat, and we're we're following along with those recommendations. That is Barry Cross. He is the Region 2 Outreach and Communications Coordinator for the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency. He was joined by Taylor Martin, the Associate Director of Programs for the Tennessee Wildlife Federation. Gentlemen, thanks to you both for being here. Thanks for teaching me a little something about hunting, and good luck to you out there. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we're checking in on our city's performing arts, what's happening with theater, ballet, and the orchestra. Tune in. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover, and the masterminds behind our theme music, Laurent and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lake Alona. Looks like I'm going turkey hunting. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.